Well, good morning. Welcome to ABC. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, we have a great service ahead. I think you're going to be really encouraged by um, the passage we have uh, this morning as Pastor Jake leads us through. Um, but as always, we love to remind you that we have on-campus services um, at ABC um, at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, and 1045. And today, um, if you're watching on Sunday, April 30th, we have baptisms on campus. And if you happen to be watching early in the morning, you want to come on down um, to our nine o'clock service. It's such a great way for us to be a part of what God's doing in the life of our church and our church family members. And so um, we love uh, doing that. And then next Sunday, we're having communion during our services. And so um, again, would love for you to take part in that in person on campus at our services at ABC. Um, with that, I wanted to mention a few other things that are coming up this week ahead, though. On Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, um, we are having our senior breakfast, which we treat the term senior kind of loosely. So if you're like 50 or 60 and you you don't mind being classified a senior, you can come on down. Uh, but it's a great time to have breakfast. It's at nine o'clock. This week, we're gonna have uh, Bruce and Jennifer St. John sharing, um, longtime members of ABC. Bruce is the building inspector in Atascadero. Maybe you met him if you got a building project going on. Jennifer, his wife, is our bookkeeper on staff at ABC, and they are just a delightful couple, and you're gonna have a great time hearing from them at the Senior Breakfast, nine o'clock on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, for moms, we're having our mom to mom group uh, meets in the morning on Thursday and also in the evening. And I think, ladies, if you can sign up for that so we know how many people to expect for uh, childcare, that'd be fantastic. Um, but this particular topic um, for mom to mom is dealing with summer, thinking about how to make the most of the summer schedule with your kids. Um, for those of you who have moms, there's gonna be some practical tips on ways to be intentional with your children this summer. So come on down um, and hopefully walk away with some good practical tips. And then the next Thursday after that, which would be May 11th, uh, we are having a special Celebrate Recovery service that evening um, with a tri-tip dinner, I'm told, at 6.15. And at 7 o'clock on May 11th, um, during the worship service for Celebrate Recovery, we're having one of our missionaries, Luke, who's been over in the Middle East um, doing ministry, is going to be here sharing. And so uh, you really benefit from hearing his testimony, some of the stories of the things God has done in his work um, over the past year. And he's actually going to be raising support for the year coming ahead um, and going to plan to go back out there full time um, doing gospel-centered kingdom work. So we're real excited to hear from Luke um, at the CR service. Uh, thanks for tuning in again. And um, let me pray for us as we jump into our message. Father, we ask that you would move um, over the screen and the audio and the sound and all of the ways that we're able to communicate with one another these days, that this would connect and join our body and our family of Christ together as we read your word and ask how to apply it. Um, be glorified in us today. In your name I pray. Amen. Hey, thank you for watching. We're in Matthew chapter 13. A couple years back, I was building a fence around our backyard and um, so I was using uh, just wood posts and they were about eight feet apart. And in between those, I was using, you know, just that kind of wire like field fencing. It's got the little mesh in it. Um, so obviously you can see through it, but it's, it's good. It keeps, you know, deer out. It keeps your dogs and your kids in. And there was 
Um, one point in the process where, so it kind of goes up around this hill and then along the edge of the hill, and then it comes back down. I was at the point in building where most of the sections, probably about 80% of these eight foot sections were filled in with the fencing already. You know, I was unrolling it and then tacking it in and then unrolling it, tacking it in. So I was almost all the way around to where it was fully contained. But there was maybe one or two little sections, just little eight foot sections that didn't yet have the fencing in it. So what was happening a couple times was, because we just have, we have a lot of deer that go through the backyard right there. What was happening a couple times is some of the younger um, deer would come through, they would be able to find their way into the yard because there was that open section and then they would kind of wander around a little bit, eat some of the weeds, whatever. But then they would have a hard time finding that same spot to get back out so it would take them longer and a lot of times it was kind of fun to watch them try and they would kind of like, you know, dork around the backyard a little bit, it would take them a while and eventually they would find their way out. So there was one time while we were in that point in the process of building the fence and my mother-in-law was here um, and she was out in the backyard. Um, one of these little deer came through and she's not from here so like deer are really novel for her. She's like, oh, it's a deer, oh my gosh. And we were that way too, like when we moved. You know, everybody is when they first come to Tascadero. It's like, it's a deer, it's amazing. Um, but then without her realizing it, she had left the door open behind her and she let our dog out of the house into the yard and so for us, we know that if there's a deer out there, at that point, we couldn't let our dog out. And we couldn't let our dog out really before the fence was finished anyways, because our dog wasn't really trained well to stay in the yard. So dog stays inside. Um, we're not supposed to let her out at that point. But she let the dog out, and there's this little baby deer in our backyard, and there's this little opening in the um, section of the fence. And so then our dog, obviously, like catches the, the whiff and catches the vision of that little deer, and our little dog, goes crazy. She's like, I finally have a friend. I'm gonna play. Let's play chase. Let's play tag. And so she's like chasing the deer all around the backyard. And the funniest thing is that our dog is like, just this most diva little dog, um, tiny little fluffy poodly looking thing. She's chasing this deer around and it's about like 30 seconds of like chaos. And it's kind of funny, kind of cute, but also a little bit wild. And the baby deer is like running as fast as it can all around the yard, like running for its deer life. It's kind of got like a Bambi thing going. It looks like it's learning to walk like on the ice, you know, on some of the cement pad. And then it keeps running, running, running. And then we're like, oh no, I hope it finds the open section in the fence to get back out. And we think it does. So it starts bolting toward the open section in the fence. But then it runs right into a section that had the fencing on it. It runs in head first, full speed to a section of fencing, breaks its neck, falls down and dies. That's it. And then our little diva poodly dog is like, still jumping at it like, oh, oh, let's play, oh, oh, let's play, let's play. And the deer is dead. And my mother-in-law is horrified. She's like, oh my gosh. Like I hear her scream and then like, I go over and check out the scene and I'm like, yep, that's a dead deer because of the fence. Okay, here's the connection. I know that's a wild story. Here's the connection, you're gonna love it. Today we're gonna talk about our unbelief. And I think our unbelief is like a fence that we can't always see. And what it does is that it limits the way that we experience God's activity in our lives. And so often we don't know it's even there until we bump up against it. 
So our unbelief, it exists inside of us as this internal loop so often that says, okay, God probably won't come through in this way. God probably won't do this. God probably won't show up in this way. Or I could never get through this. I could never be healed from this. I could never be freed from this. This will always be this way. I will always have this struggle. I'll always have this stronghold in my life. It's this loop, this internal conversation that just keeps us uh, contained within this fence that we can't even see. So we come up against these crossroads, these challenges and trials, and it's just like running headfirst into this fence that we didn't even know was there because we couldn't see it. So I wanna talk about how our unbelief limits our experience of God's presence and his power in our lives. But just as our unbelief is like that fence, faith opens the door for God's power to be put on full display in our lives. Let me read this passage from Matthew 13. It's verses 53 through 58. Remember, we just walked through a bunch of parables the last couple weeks. Uh, Jesus teaches them and he explains them and then he comes to his hometown. Verse 53, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. It's super interesting. From verses 1 through 52 of chapter 13, there's really two, there's a bunch of parables, but there's two core parables that are on the the ideas of belief and unbelief. It's the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds. It talks about um, what you do in terms of your response to what is taught, the seed that's thrown out. Do you believe or do you disbelieve? So those are two really core parables. Now from verses 53 in chapter 13, really to the beginning of chapter 16, so for about three chapters here, Matthew records eight instances that demonstrate in real life these parables that Jesus just taught through. So it's eight real life examples of four different types of soil. Let me just breeze through those really quick. In chapter 14, 1 through 12, this is going to be next week, we see the hard soil of Herod's heart. Later in chapter 14, we're going to see some shallow soil in thousands of people that were fed and then the people that were healed in Gennesaret. They followed him out of this early fascination, but few remained committed in the long run. They fell off relatively quickly. We don't hear much about them after that. In between those two stories, a third is that we see the good soil of the disciples who worshiped Jesus after watching him walk on water. That's good soil. You see what Jesus did and what he's capable of, and then they worshiped him. Number four, again, in chapter 15, 1 through 20, we're going to see some more hard soil in the Pharisees because they're trying to find a reason to condemn Jesus. That's obviously hard soil. Later, we see good soil in a Canaanite woman who begs Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter. We see this really rich, good, fertile um, soil of faith. She believes in who Jesus is and what he can do. 
In chapter 15, 29 through 39, we see more shallow soil in the many Galileans who brought Jesus their sick and afflicted, but they didn't make any genuine commitment. So again, they were enamored by Jesus's ability and there was some early fascination, but no long-term genuine commitment. Seventh, in chapter 16, one through four, the Pharisees and Sadducees, again, are gonna show their hard soil in seeking to trap Jesus by asking him for signs. That's obviously hard soil. And now number eight is the scene that we just read. Jesus gets rejected on his own turf, back in his hometown, and we see the hard soil. The wild part, the reason I just said all that, the wild part, I just want us to be aware over the next few chapters and even the next couple months of teaching, the ratio of belief to unbelief, so good soil to bad soil, it's the same as the actual parable itself. One out of every four of these examples exhibit good soil and they respond positively to the work of Jesus. So two out of eight examples are positive. There's six negative examples. One of the six negative examples is the scene that we're in right here in the town of Nazareth. So I know that's just, that's nerding out. But with that context in our minds, let's ask what is happening here? And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Where is there? There is Capernaum. He had been in Capernaum for about a year. He was using it at his home base. He did and he said a lot of things while he was there in Capernaum, but the response was varied, right? I mean, there's gonna be positive, there's gonna be negative. I would bet it was probably about one in four of positive to negative uh, responses to him. In general, Jesus was rejected much more than he was accepted. So he leaves. That's where we read this, coming to his hometown. He taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. They said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Have you and your friends ever talked about what would happen if one of you became famous? I, we, I feel like we talked about that sometimes, like when I was in high school or even recently. And it's like, you know, the ones who would stay down to earth and stay cool. And then there's some, and it's just like, yeah, they would forget us as soon as they got famous. Like they'd get a new phone and delete their old number and they would never call us. They would just start like hanging out with the Kardashians and everybody else. And they would totally forget uh, where they're from. I think it was a little bit of that right here. Like did Jesus forget his roots? They're saying, this is the same Jesus, right? Like we, we know him, these are his brothers. His sisters still live here. His parents are like down the road. Like this is the same Jesus that grew up here, right? Like he went to synagogue like everyone else. He was a very normal uh, Jewish kid in the community of Nazareth. He learned his dad's trade. He was a carpenter. He stayed local for like the early parts of his adult life. He, he probably built some of their houses. Like he just did this really average kind of normal work. He didn't really go off to some prestigious rabbi college. It was like, maybe he did a little bit of Cuesta, like that kind of thing, but he was just a very like, kind of normal, like homegrown kid who was still here. But then a couple years ago, it's like he went around and now we're starting to hear these rumors about who he thinks he is now and what he's doing. To his hometown community, Jesus of Nazareth was this overwhelmingly average citizen of Nazareth. That might be the main reason why this was now so hard to grasp, like everything that they were hearing about, everything that they were seeing in Jesus, it was so hard to grasp. 
It even says later on, his mom and siblings eventually believed in him. We see that in the book of Acts chapter one. And that might be one of the most profound apologetics there is, by the way. I mean, do you ever think about that? Like what it would take for you to believe that someone in your family was the Messiah that was promised, you know, from the Old Testament? <laughs> like how, um, how certain would you have to be that that was like your son or your brother? Uh, it's, it, it's insane. And then John says, when Jesus first started his ministry, not even his brothers believed in him. John 7, 5 says that. But eventually that they did. So they're just wrestling through this idea, the whole town. Jesus is from here. We saw him grow up. He's the son of a carpenter named Joseph. He himself became a carpenter. But now apparently he has gone on tour around the whole region and he's claiming to be the son of God, even the son of man. And apparently he's started getting some attention and now he's back home and we don't know what to think. So you can understand their reticence, right? You can understand their confusion and their hesitation. But here's where it continues to move. It wasn't just that they were confused or they were concerned, but we see their response move to the point of resentment. That's the next line. And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. They weren't just confused or concerned, they were offended. Okay, confusion happens when you can't explain something, but offense happens when you think you can. See, confusion happens when you can't explain something, but offense happens when you think you can. You know what I mean? Like, the you get cut off in traffic, and confusion is, I don't know why that guy cut me off. I wonder why he cut me off. Offense is, wow, he thinks his time is so much more important than my time, okay? So you think you can explain what happened. That's when offense takes place. See, they were past the point of asking questions about Jesus, and instead, they were making assumptions about Jesus. It wasn't just, okay, we don't understand what Jesus is doing. This is confusing. No, instead it was, no, we understand completely. Jesus thinks he's really better than us. He has lost his mind and his ego is out of control. He's lost his, his connection to his roots and he's, he's completely gone off the deep end. Who are you to be saying all this stuff, Jesus, to be doing all this stuff? We grew up together. Your dad's a carpenter. You're not special. That was the offense. They were offended. And don't miss this. You gotta ask, why were they offended? Well, because of his audacity. But it's interesting to think if he was a stranger, like if they had never met Jesus before, I don't think they would have been so offended. They just would have thought he was crazy. But because they did know him, they thought he was crazy and they were offended because they had preconceived ideas of who Jesus is based on their experience with him. They had enough history so that Jesus fit inside of a category for them. He fit in a compartment based on their experience and their history with him. And because now Jesus isn't fitting into this compartment, into this box where they thought he belonged, well, that's offensive. So they're offended. We'll say more on that in a minute. Next line there. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief this piercing landing spot for this quick, short passage. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. We need to know that some of Jesus's miracles were done in direct response to someone's faith, but many, and I would say probably most of his signs and wonders were not. They were 
just him doing what he, in his sovereign goodness, decided to do in a given moment, in a given space. But while his works were always done to strengthen faith, it seems, especially here, that Jesus did choose to limit his wonders and signs wherever there was firm and willful unbelief. Let me say that again. It seems apparent here that Jesus chooses to limit his wonders and signs wherever there was firm and willful unbelief. And it's not that our faith or lack of faith can manipulate what God does. We don't believe that. It's not that we can control what God does or what he doesn't do. But it's almost to say that God is like the ultimate gentleman who stands at the door and knocks. And he loves to work where he is most welcome to work. And if he knows that his work won't be received, it's like he's not just going to kick down the door just to be thrown out. So Jesus perceives their unbelief. He knows it. He sees it coming. And as a good and loving and I think a sovereign response, he does not do much. Okay, that's the scene. That's how it goes. There's this sequence here that I don't want us to miss that I think um, lands in a relevant place for us and I want to use it to frame out the rest of the time. The sequence goes from facts to feelings to results. That's three pieces, facts, feelings, and then results. So we start with the facts. That's how they start. The people acknowledge the facts. They say, uh, they see who Jesus is. They hear him teaching in the synagogue. They say he has wisdom. He has mighty works. And we've heard of all these things. He's done all these things. Okay, these are the details about Jesus and surrounding Jesus that the people of Nazareth couldn't argue with. We just heard him teach. That guy is wise. Like, you can't argue with that. We've heard of the works, the healings, the miracles. This stuff does not just happen, but it's been happening with him. Something's going on. And we can't really argue with it. Now for you and me, this is the same reality that every person has to encounter. We have to encounter and come up against the facts about Jesus and the facts surrounding Jesus. See, every person, just like the people of Nazareth, has to respond to the wisdom and the teachings of Jesus. It was like nothing the world had ever heard before. Every person alive needs to respond to the mighty works and all these things about Jesus. It's like nothing the world has ever seen. The healings, the wonders, the signs. Yes, all those things, but, but even more so, his life, his death, and his resurrection. These are the facts about Jesus. And every person has to respond. Now, some people don't agree that those are the facts. And that's what usually scares us in the conversations around apologetics is what if they just have a, a different baseline of facts? So we think, well, I don't want to share my faith and they're going to tell me the Bible is full of contradictions or they're going to tell me that Jesus had a twin brother and they staged the resurrection. They're different facts. Or how could you believe in a talking snake? You know, they're going to kind of deconstruct what I'm saying because they have a different idea of what the facts are. And honestly, I think that's the easier part of apologetics because I do think that facts are facts, and some people might not agree, but I really do think most would be willing to. Most who are intellectually honest enough will find themselves at a place where they say, yeah, Jesus was a real person. Jesus really died. No legitimate historian denies that. And he really rose again. No legitimate historian denies that. But the hard part is we're not just dealing with facts. We're never just dealing with facts. We're always dealing with feelings and with lived experience. We're always dealing and I think living out our own versions of Nazareth's offense. 
their, their own predetermined um, posture toward Jesus. That's what we're always dealing with. So we move to feelings. Feelings. After you encounter the facts of Jesus, the facts surrounding Jesus, you have to deal with your own gut reaction. What does this stir inside of you? For Nazareth, it was offense. This is off-putting. We're not sure about this. We don't have a category for this. This is offensive on multiple levels. Here's what the people of Nazareth, though, got wrong that still challenges each of us. They let their feelings and their experience, you could say their predetermined posture toward Jesus, they let that determine their theology about Jesus rather than the other way around. That's what we all get wrong. We let our feelings and our experience determine our theology, not the other way around. See, they were offended because who Jesus was claiming to be didn't match who they understood and who they assumed him to be. And any times our categories are threatened like that, well, that feels unnerving and it feels offensive. So it was their own predisposition toward Jesus, their understanding and assumptions that kept them from faith in Jesus. So there was this predetermined unbelief and that unbelief, it stood tall like this fence that they couldn't even see and it limited how they were going to experience the power of Jesus right in front of them. Too often, that's what we do. We let our feelings obscure the facts just like that. See, so often we're tempted to build a theology around our emotions and experiences, and God is just saying, no, 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 let your feelings follow what you know to be true about me. Construct your feelings and your experience based on what you know to be true about me, not the other way around. We want to so often interpret God's sovereignty in light of our circumstances. And God says, no, 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 flip it. Interpret your circumstances based on my sovereignty. Don't let fear and shame and addiction and failure, don't let that explain away my faithfulness, but let my faithfulness speak to the fear and the shame, the addiction, the failure. Believers struggle with this all the time. Unbelievers struggle with it too. The offense that Nazareth took at Jesus then colored their response to the plain facts about Jesus. See, that's how it is. Predetermined feelings always obscure the facts. And this is where I think apologetics gets a lot harder. Because once the posture is decidedly against Jesus, then we're going to do all kinds of argumentative gymnastics to obscure and to distract from the facts that still demand to be reckoned with. See, you've maybe heard this or felt or experienced this kind of a conversation before where you say, okay, look at the resurrection of Jesus. And they say, yeah, but Christians are hypocrites. Yeah, but Jesus was a real person and he really died. Yeah, but I'm too smart to believe in a global flood, right? Yeah, but hundreds of witnesses to the resurrected uh, person of Jesus. And what about the empty tomb and no body ever found? And what about the healing power of Jesus? And what about Pentecost and the birth of the church? And what about 12 outcasts that became over 2 billion people? What about all that? And the response is, yeah, but celebrity pastors keep on failing. Look at all the moral decline in the church. You see what I mean? There's this predetermined posture against Jesus. And when you have that, you start doing all this just argumentative work that is related but not relevant. All sound ideas, but they're not valid responses to the facts. That's what happens when our feelings and even our own experience try to lead our theology and not the other way around. So to this point, we see the facts presented and acknowledged 
we see what happens when our feelings and even our own experience, just like Nazareth, has, has colored their response. And then Matthew keeps going and he clues us in to the results. Where does all of this leave us? And it says right here, the results. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let me read that one more time. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. There is a mysterious dynamic here. Um, we believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe there's nothing we do that in any way controls or limits or nothing close to manipulates what God wants to do or will do. His sovereignty covers all his actions, but there's some almost unknown to us kind of dynamic way in which he chooses to interact with our faith or lack of faith, to interact in real time with our belief or our lack of belief. This is a piercing moment for the people of Nazareth. And I think for us today, this is the whole point. This is where I want to land. Like everything else could be introduction. This is where I want to land. Believers and unbelievers alike, do you want your experience of God to be limited by your unbelief? Do you want that? Or do you want to let God take down that fence and show you what he's capable of? Now for unbelievers, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, that limit is obvious. Like that fence is fairly obvious. Your life now and eternally is literally limited because of your unbelief. You're not going to see the saving power of Jesus in your life without believing in what Jesus did. But what about believers? After you believe, after you place faith in him, yes, you're saved, but I want you to hear that your unbelief, your lack of faith in the day-to-day, -to, -day, to whatever degree, in whatever measure, it's still going to limit how you experience God's power and his presence and his provision in your life. For many of us, we had greater faith at the point of salvation than we do now for the process of sanctification. See, it's like we believe that God did this crazy epic thing for us, and in some ways that's easier to believe in and believe on than it is to believe he will now sanctify us in this way and in this way, and he'll free us from this and he'll heal us from that. So it's like we believe that the God of the universe became a human and he lived a perfect life and he nailed all of our sin to the cross where he died a substitutionary death for us and he imparted his own righteousness onto us and then he rose from the grave, conquering death itself once and for all and now it's like he lets us hold the trophy even, but now, you might say, my marriage is rocky and I don't know if God can save that. But now I've struggled with the addiction for so long, I don't know if God can redeem that. Now I've prayed for this thing for so long, I don't know if God can provide for that. Or this relationship feels so broken, I don't know if God can heal that. I feel so alone so often, I don't know if God can stop that. It's been so many years since I experienced the intimacy I had with God at the beginning. I haven't felt his presence with me in years. Can God restore that? Without even realizing it, our unbelief just stands like this firm fence that we can't even see until our faith is bumping up against it. And it's limiting the way we experience God's power. That's what our unbelief does. But just like the people of Nazareth, the facts are still the facts. The facts are still the facts for us. And the fact 
for us is that there is still an empty tomb and there's still a risen savior with holes in his hands and with mercy in his eyes and he has the power to save. And if that is still true, then anything is possible. If he is still risen, if the tomb is still empty, then anything is possible. So take down the fence and believe in what God can do because of what he's already done. See, take down the fence, the fence of the unbelief and believe in greater things. Believe in what he can do because of what he's already done. And how do you do that? How do you fight your unbelief? You respond to the facts. You take what you know to be true and you keep responding in obedience one step at a time. You want to experience more more intimacy with God? Then keep pursuing purity. You want to see breakthrough in your marriage? Then you just keep being faithful. Keep honoring the vows you made at the beginning. You want to see world change? Then keep loving your neighbor and keep forgiving people for the smallest offenses and the biggest offenses. You want to see strongholds come down and prison walls crumble to the ground like Paul and Silas? I think they would say you just keep praying and praising even when you're not sure the walls are ever going to come down. For all that you hope God does in your life, just keep responding to what he has already done. Let me say that one more time. For all that you hope God does in your life, you just keep responding to what he has already done. And with every act of obedience, big and small, you are fighting against unbelief and you are cultivating space for God to show you what he's capable of. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for these words in scripture. Thanks for this story that challenges our unbelief. I pray, Lord, that you would limit that. You would limit our unbelief. You would take down those fences that we have around our experience of your goodness and your power and your provision. I pray that we would believe in you for greater things in the future because of what you've already done. For all that we hope you do, God, we will just keep responding to what you've already done. You've done enough. Lord, you've saved us. You've redeemed us. You've loved us and adopted us as sons and daughters. So God, we want to keep responding in purity and holiness and love. We want to keep becoming the people you call us to be. Lord, we believe in you. We believe in what you've done, and we believe in what you can do. Lord, we want to see you work and move in mighty ways in and through this church. So as you do that, Lord, continue forming us, making us holier, making us more like Jesus, making us more loving, making us more urgent and missional in our community. Lord, we just want to be amazed at what we see you do. We believe in you. Lord, help our unbelief grow our faith today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for watching.